Sound Design Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today, my guest is Ellen Jalin. As usual, all show notes will be available at sounddesignlive.com. Ellen, first of all, thanks for coming, and thank you for coming to my meetup yesterday. Yeah, great to be here, and uh, meetup is cool. If you're in the Bay Area of San Francisco, I just started a Bay Area Pro Audio Freelancer meetup. We'll have monthly meetings and talk about finding work and other issues facing local audio professionals. You can find out more about this at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for pro audio at meetup.com. Besides being a pretty badass sound designer, Ellen is also a project manager for digital products at Meyer Sound, overseeing products like Dimitri and AVB. So I want to see if we can really nail it down. Like, let's try to describe the things that you work on in terms of what they can do and what people can use them for. So to generalize, Dimitri is basically a highly configurable digital mixer plus speaker management, and AVB is the digital communication that connects all those units, correct? Uh, yeah, so Dimitri has an, a number of components to it. Um, you know, being a um, big matrix is one thing, and having EQ and delay on channels, also doing playback and uh, with the big uh, audio automation engine in it. So um, this allows you to set up a bunch of cues, fades, crossfades, matrix moves, um, space map, panning. Um, these are all used in uh, many shows. Um, you know, a lot of live shows like Search Soleil and uh, Broadway shows, also things like theme park shows and things. Um, so there's a lot of uh, automation capabilities built in along with uh, scripting and so forth. Since the Dimitri system is relatively expensive and uh, it's comparable to having something like maybe an Avid venue system, even with the most basic Dimitri system you can get, I was going to ask you, why don't I see more of them? Like I've never worked some more that has a Dimitri system. And I think you just answered my question by talking about how advanced its capabilities are. I mean, you can't do that level of automation with um, the kinds of consoles you can buy for the same amount of money. Uh, so it's, I guess the answer is that it's highly specialized, right? So you don't, it's not the kind mm -hmm. of thing you would just want in um, a concert venue that's doing rock bands every night. A Dimitri system would have everything that you need in between your mics and your speakers to do a whole, your whole system in there um, and being able to automate any part of it that you want individually or together with, um, you know, changing the whole system at the same time. In addition to the things that I mentioned, it's uh, also used uh, things like regional theaters and uh, subplanetariums. For instance, the California Academy of Sciences has a, um, the predecessor to Dimitri, uh, Matrix 3, in their, for their planetarium show. So it's got some of the, a lot of the same um, kind of capabilities as just the uh, previous version of the product. Why do theaters like them? Theaters like them because uh, we've designed them specifically for theatrical applications. So um, early in the evolution of our um, audio automation products, um, you know, it's really started with theatrical sound designers. Um, and specifically, Jonathan Deans was uh, pretty involved early on in the company and is still um, involved in driving some of our features and things uh, for um, cool shows that he's been working on. 
Um, is he a famous sound designer? Should I know that name? Um, he's done a bunch of the Cirque du Soleil shows as well as a ton of shows on Broadway. You know, Dimitri is used on a lot of shows, and some of it, some of them are using it in really uh, unique ways. Um, one of the capabilities um, that's built into Dimitri is our space map multi-channel panning system. So you can draw a map of where your speakers are and draw a path that you want the sound to travel in. Um, and then all of the mixing for that is done automatically when you recall a cue. Um, and you can also set this up to be controlled live, either you know by with a touchscreen like a you know iPad, OSC um, app, uh, or um, in the case of one of our applications, uh, there's a show in uh, Amsterdam called Soldier of Orange, and this one is unique because the audience is in a uh, round platform in the middle of the venue and all the stages are around the outside. So the audience platform rotates um, to <laughs> reveal each of the uh, stages. And there's a big wall set that slide around as well. But the speakers are all fixed uh, to, the, to, uh, to the stage side. So it's, they don't rotate with the audience, but the front of house position does. So there are uh, 12 kind of short line arrays um, around, spaced evenly around the circle. And the front of house mixer is, you know, mixing to, you know, the band and it's got a huge cast, so there's a lot of mics. And they wanted to just mix to, you know, and not have to worry about tracking the movements, you know, especially during rehearsal, if they're rotating things around and, um, you know, didn't want to have it on a cue by cue basis because um, that would just be a nightmare in terms of uh, keeping up with uh, changes and so forth. Okay. So I um, wanted to just mix to a, you know, left, center, right, and surrounds. You know, I think there's about eight channels or something, you know, just to have some simple outputs to mix to that would automatically track with the audience platform and route them to the correct speakers. Hmm. So what we did was hooked up the motor that's driving the rotation of the audience platform and that's sending the uh, voltage output to uh, one of the Dimitri units, and that is converting it into, you know, essentially a location <laughs> um, or rotation angle, um, and mapping that to um, some space map channels. So when the audience platform rotates, these, um, you know, we'll call them simulated outputs of the left, center, right, and surrounds all rotate along with it, so that your center channel is moving <laughs> when the audience uh, platform is moving. Um, and so the, you know, that makes the front of house mixer's job a lot easier um, to not have to worry about that tracking. Yeah. yeah. That is not something that I think you'd be able to do with any other system. Would it be too crazy if the Galileo just tracked atmospheric conditions automatically? Because right now you have to put them in manually and say like, okay, it's getting hotter, it's getting more humid. But mm -hmm. what if it just did that automatically and as the day got hotter and more or less humid it just tracked that and made changes. I don't think that there is a technical reason why you couldn't do that, but um, most people mess. prefer that their sound processing doesn't change unless they tell it to. Right. Yeah. So um, maybe you're different <laughs> in that regard. Yes, I want as many things automated as possible, but that's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, so we already have Cobra Sound, EtherSound, and companies continue to come out with their own proprietary networks. So why do we need another communication standard, and why have companies like Meyer Sound decided to throw their weight behind AVB? Yeah, good question. Um, and I think you may have already partially answered it by saying, pointing out the differences between proprietary things that companies have developed versus standards. Um, so sometimes people might say that Cobranet has become a sort of industry standard, but that doesn't mean that it's covered by any standards organization. Um, and to use it, you have to pay Cobrasound, right? Uh, I mean, to use it in your own product. You have to pay, uh, I think Cirrus Logic okay. is the current company that you have to pay a licensing fee to. Yeah, so you have to pay a licensing fee if you want to um, integrate these into your products. Um, and uh, in most cases, they're also kind of a closed box. So if something goes wrong in there or something is happening that you don't know why it's doing that, then you have to call up your, you know, your support person at that company and work through things and you know you, you don't really have any control over what's going on there um, but uh, with the AVB standards this is uh, um, being developed by IEEE and uh, most of the standards are now ratified and finalized and anybody is free to implement those standards in their products without having to pay anybody a license fee. And a lot of them have been implemented in um, certain networking chipsets already for, uh, over the past couple of years. There's a, a bunch of chips out there already that have the, uh, you know, the hardware-specific requirements uh, already added in. I see. So as companies develop their own networking protocols, they were doing that in an effort to uh, sell them. So it took a body like IEEE to develop a standard that then anyone could use. When an audio company is creating a networking uh, protocol, a networking distribution protocol, they have to, you know, currently or before IVB, have to work around the limitations of Ethernet. Like a network, typical network today, doesn't have any concept of time, of how long it takes the packets to get from one point to another point. You know, they have to have buffering and uh, set, you know, setting latency. These are all things that are pretty standard in Cobranet um, and other systems where, um, you know, you don't have a guarantee of your audio getting from point A to point B. And so part of the AVB standards includes uh, time stamping and master clock that is uh, part of the network switch and, um, and the endpoints so that they know what the timing is and they know how long it will take a packet to get from point A to point B and they will guarantee that that will happen. So in this uh, AVB system, the network switch is intimately involved in what's going on with the audio traveling, or audio or video streams traveling across the network and um, guaranteeing bandwidth um, for those time sensitive streams. Um, instead of being kind of agnostic to whatever data, you know, it doesn't necessarily know uh, if you have Cobranet traffic, it doesn't know what that is. It just sees some packets and things, and it doesn't know that there's some audio in there and there's a print job, and maybe it'll decide to, you know, find the, <laughs> get the traffic for the print job instead of the audio. So, you know, AVB um, standards prevent that from happening by having the dedicated bandwidth for audio streams, and then a limited amount of bandwidth for other legacy traffic. So the connection that people should understand is that 
before we had Wi-Fi for a little while, it was called 802.11 something something. And, uh, and then they put together, was it a group called Wi-Fi? The Wi-Fi Alliance. The Wi-Fi Alliance to popularize it and to get it put into products, right? And so that's why we know it as Wi-Fi now. So that's the same thing that Avenue Alliance is going to do for AVB. So that's what you'll see written on products that carry, um, that are certified to communicate with AVB is it'll say Avenue Alliance certified or something, right? Yeah, the, and that certification point is really important because um, you know even though IEEE wrote the standards, they don't have any... Uh, control over people implementing them and saying that they've implemented them, uh, even if they've done so incorrectly. Um, and implementing to a standard doesn't guarantee that one implementation will work with another person's implementation, um, just due to human nature and interpreting wording differently. So, um, so what Avenue is doing is setting up a certification program with um, some additional tests specifically aimed at interoperability so that when you have two Avenue devices, no matter who, which company has made them, you know that you at least have some baseline interoperability of being able to get audio or video from one point to the other point. And is that the best place for people to go when they want to know who is already implementing this in their products? For example, if they want to know what microphones have AVB or what mixing boards have AVB already, is there a list like that on their site? Yeah, there's a, there's a list of member companies, and I think we're getting pretty close to 50. Um, there's a pretty big uh, um, pro-audio contingent on there. And um, it also has news uh, product announcements from those member companies, like Sennheiser announced um, an AVB microphone just at Infocom a couple weeks ago. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a mic with a Cat5 <laughs> cable coming out of it. So let's, let's describe this a little bit then, how this works. So Cat5 cable comes out of the microphone. It plugs into a switch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, that could go anywhere. Let's say it goes to a mixing board or it goes to another switch and then a mixing board. Um, how does the mixing board know where that microphone is and interact with it? The streams uh, are set up through um, using a standard called 1722.1. Um, and so that allows devices to kind of advertise on the network who they are and what kind of device they are. Um, and you know other information like the manufacturer or sample rates that they support and so forth. So um, with the 1722.1 control software, the uh, mixing console can see what else, what's on the network and say, oh, there's that microphone. Um, you know, start sending me your, the audio from that microphone. You know, maybe it'll say and send it to input one or something. So then that request travels through the network. And each of the switches in between the microphone and the console will check to make sure they have the available bandwidth to set up that stream. Um, and then they'll say yes or no. And if they say yes, then that bandwidth will be allocated specifically for that connection from the mic to the console. And it'll be guaranteed um, for as long as, you know, until they request to take it down or um, until it gets disconnected. Okay, so that's a process that you just described, but people should understand that that all happens with always a maximum latency of two milliseconds and in gigabit configurations, even less, like microseconds, right? Yeah, so there's been some um, some numbers floating around that are not quite technically correct. Um, and so th- that connection there, that process that I just described of the switches allocating bandwidth and so forth, that takes place um, 
you know, you start receiving audio at the console um, almost instantaneously as soon as you click that connect button. The latency of the network, yeah, is very, very low, even over many hops on gigabit networks. What's a hop? Uh, it's a connection between two points. Well, all the microphones have to have their own preamps and ADD converters, so that's all happening before it goes down the pipe? Uh, yeah. So um, there will need to be some conversion to from the analog to digital in there in order to create that stream. All right, now can we make wild predictions? Sure. In 10 years, AVB will be so common that all interconnections from microphone to speaker will be made with Cat5 cable. So no more microphone cables. And wireless network connections will be so fast and robust that they will eventually replace all of those connections and we will finally achieve my dreams of a world without cables. <laughs> um, Say it's true. I can't think of a reason why that should not be true. <laughs> Relevant to your point earlier about you know microphones having uh, preamps and so forth in it, uh, AVB will also work with uh, PoE so you can have your microphone powered by the network switch that it's connected to. Mm. Um, uh, PoE, PoE Plus, you know, there's a whole host of Ethernet standards that come along with, it, um, you know, the AVB uh, ecosystem, uh, like security and things. So, like, you, there, you don't need to kind of reinvent the wheel to create an AVB network. It, there's a lot of stuff that comes along with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and there's uh, some work underway for wireless. Um, that's not the priority at the moment. The priority is to get AVB and getting it working and getting the Avenue certification uh, up and going. Um, but there is certainly a big uh, amount of interest in that, um, especially on the consumer product front. All right, do you have any wild predictions? Just that it will make things uh, a lot simpler. I mean, right now, when people go to deploy a you know a proprietary audio networking solution, you know they have to figure out which switches will work with it because you know there isn't a Cobernet brand switch. You know there isn't a switch that knows what Cobernet is, um, or any of the other uh, proprietary solutions, um, and you have to be an you know, networking expert, you know, more and more. Um, and so the goal with, a one of the goals with ABB is to kind of diminish that need for audio people to be networking experts. Sound Design Live produces free independent personal reports to share techniques, technology, and motivation from audio industry leaders. You can subscribe to the podcast at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Are there any products you're working on that you think would be fun to talk about besides Dimitri? Um, so the the other, uh, I mean, the main cool product that we're um, we're launching now and have been shipping for a little bit is Cal, our column array loudspeaker. Um, that uses waveform synthesis to do beam steering on the signal. So a Cal 96 has um, you know 96 different driver elements in it, and then by applying small amounts of delay, you can uh, to each of those drivers separately. Then you can steer where the beam is going instead of going straight out like normal speakers. 
I think it would be fun if you could describe the setup that they had at Infocom in the uh, the demo that you heard. Yeah, yeah. So I did um, a really great demo at Infocom where uh, we combined um, a, the Cal demo with a Constellation setup. So Constellation is a variable acoustic system that lets you change how reverberant a room is um, by, you know, essentially by making the surfaces more reflective than they are naturally through the power of math and algorithms and so forth, and a lot of microphones and speakers. So um, it doesn't, uh, can't take away reverberation, but it can add to it. And one of the main applications for a speaker like Cal with beam steering is in spaces like cathedrals and uh, you know with tricky acoustics. So uh, especially if there's a lot of like old architecture, you know there's not a lot of room for giant line arrays of speakers. You know even though they still want to get good volume um, and uh, and projection by having a uh, speaker with a smaller form factor, um, you know, one that's, that's very thin, that can fit into a wall very easily, that um, it doesn't take up a lot of space, uh, but still being able to aim the sound down away from reflective surfaces and just into the audience areas, um, that makes their job a lot easier if, instead of having to put big speakers and angle them down and cover up, you know, their beautiful glass windows and so forth. So in this demo that we did, uh, we used the constellation system to uh, simulate a cathedral setup, so it had uh, like a three or four second reverberation time. You know, and anybody in the room who you know, clapped, or you know, we had some, uh, we had a musician there. You know, any any sound that was made by somebody in the room would be, you know, reverberated, and you could hear it. Um, you know, the reverb tail extending off for, for some days. time. Yeah. And so uh, then we started playing um, a track through the Cal speaker um, with no beam steering, so just going straight out. Um, and at the height that it was mounted, it was pretty much, you know, going across the heads of everybody in the room. Couldn't really hear the words very well. Um, you know, it was just kind of muddy, and everything was getting confused. And then uh, in the middle of the track, they switched on the beam steering, so it was angled down uh, about 12 degrees, and immediately. The voice track was, it was like it was just speaking directly into your head. <laughs> and the room just like totally went away, um, even though you could still clap and hear your clap reverberating around, the actual sound from the speaker was not. Um, and so, yeah, really clear. You could walk all around the room and still hear it perfectly fine. Um, really great volume and um, good frequency response, even for music tracks. Wow. Yeah. Sound design. Live. So I know you're interested in game design. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, what kind of games you'd like and what you like about the sound design, what draws you to that. Yeah, um, so the game that I've played recently that I was most impressed with the sound design for uh, was actually this game called Limbo, um, which is, uh, you, know, you could call it an indie game. Um, and it's mostly uh, this grayscale world where you just have this little boy who's traveling through these woods and um, you know just a side scroller platformer kind of thing with a very dark uh, kind of vicious side to it though. So there's a lot of really deadly traps and like a giant spider and the, you know it's not a very pleasant world at all. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it's very unsettling actually to be playing it. And one of the reasons for that is the is the sound. It's very minimal, and there isn't really like a music soundtrack to it. It's mostly done in kind of you know recorded sounds and kind of more emotional kinds of sounds. So it's one of the only games that I can think of that has made really good use of silence. There's a lot of cool music games that are out that aren't necessarily about creating music, but about using music in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, Child of Eden. Um, you feel like you're essentially performing it when you get good at it because things are timed to music, and the more that you time your actions to the music, then the more um, full the music is feeling. And so you get so um, you you get a better response from the game when you are performing it better, essentially. Um, without being very literal about it in terms of like hit this thing and this thing and this thing at this time, you know, like guitar hero. Ellen, you are involved in some pretty interesting interactive games. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the most recent project that I did was uh, called Dr. Wen. Geniuses of 2012, you must help me. And then it was uh, a weekend long puzzle hunt interactive theater role playing game. <laughs> Somewhere during my bounces through time, I lost an envelope containing uh, information vital to restoring the timeline. For teams of players, um, and so there were a bunch of different components here. There was, you know, live action scenes with actors that also had sound effects. You know, this, uh, the big set piece was a time machine that was also changing over the course of this weekend. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of videos that we would show to the players at different times when they, you know, uh, solved a puzzle. One of the, a, a couple of the videos were puzzles in themselves, uh, and there were also puzzles that had audio components to them. Oh, great, Scott, I'm losing audio signal. Quick, call the lab and tell them to send me where I show you. Hurry! I like to ask people about their educational background mm -hmm. for students who are listening or people who might be interested in school. So I wonder if you could talk specifically about what you did at Carnegie Mellon since your degree seems pretty broad um, and how that led you to work in theater. Sure. Yeah, so um, I was in the uh, in the drama program at Carnegie Mellon School of Drama. They had some sound design classes, but they were kind of just getting started with uh, an official sound design track, you know, to go along with their costume design, set design, and so forth. Um, and so um, in addition to the drama classes, I also ventured outside the drama school to you know the music department and um, took some programming classes and was working with my advisors to find the best classes that would help me focus more on sound design when they didn't have all those pieces in place. Mm -hmm. So now Carnegie Mellon has um, uh, grown the sound design program and so it's much more integrated with the rest of the classes. So you have projects now where it's a combination costume and sound design or lighting and sound design or, you know, it's, sort of this, it's uh, much more integrated into the curriculum and they have more classes specifically for theatrical sound design. Um, and at the, but at the time that I took it, 
Um, you know, I also ended up with uh, two minors uh, with uh, composition and um, music technology. Okay. Uh, then it was able to work on the recording crew. And so that meant like going to the school of music, student recitals and recording them um, and getting paid to do that. So getting a lot of experience and just kind of like setting up a system and and uh, getting up the mics and recording it and creating, you know, a CD and, uh, you know, dad, we had dad tapes. Dad tapes. Yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. So, um, you know, everything from, you know, a simple piano recital to a big orchestra performance, you know, where we'd bring in a bunch of the recording crew people and, you know, um, uh, so that was that was a great experience and really, you know, kind of hands-on doing things over and over again. Um, that helped me out later, too. Because I'm curious then how you got into theater, how you got your first jobs, how you made those first connections. Yeah, yeah. So um, my, you know, first sound design projects for shows were at school, um, but, you know, there's actually a pretty uh, extensive theater community in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, you know, most of them with connections to Carnegie Mellon just because that theater program uh, is actually the, it was actually the first university to have a theater program in the United States. Wow. So um, there was a bunch of people around town um, who were very familiar with the program and knew many of the uh, faculty and staff members. So um, my first job outside of school for doing sound design work was at the Benedim Center, uh, working with Chris Evans on the Civic Light Opera, um, which is a summer season in Pittsburgh where they, you know, it was created to bring in talent from New York and LA and put on big shows that they have, you know, they had like a $6 million budget and they do five or six shows over the summer, you know, big musicals, sometimes um, involving, uh, you know, some touring productions or co-productions. So, um, yeah, my senior year at Carnegie Mellon, I'd gone to USITT, which is a big technical theater conference. And that's also where a bunch of theatrical sound designers get together every year. Um, and companies like Disney and Cirque du Soleil uh, show up there to hire interns and, you know, um, upcoming graduates. So um, that's where I first, uh, you know, got connected with them and uh, got hired to work uh, in the parks. What did you do in Disney World? Uh, I did... um, You you played Minnie Mouse. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I ran Monitor's first show at American Gardens, which is at Epcot. And um, also did a show, there was a show um, with a really awesome band called Off Kilter, who are still there. Right, so also at USITT that year, I had met uh, B.C. Keller, who was at the time head of audio at South Coast Repertory Theater in Costa Mesa. And I had um, heard about it because they had a, uh, an LCS Matrix 3 system, which... Um, as mentioned earlier, it was the predecessor to Dimitri. So at USITT, I met B.C. Keller, and um, he gave uh, a tour of the facilities to myself and some other people and showed off the, the LCS system with, with Space Map. And they had just done a show, um, the Wayside Stories from, or Sideways Stories from Wayside School, which had this big tornado tornado scene with cows flying around and stuff. So, you know, some really cool sound effects using Space Map. While I was at working at Disney, I'd been there for uh, maybe two months, and I saw that they were, that South Coast Rep was hiring an audio technician. And 
I knew BC, and I applied for the job and said, please get me out of Orlando. (laughs) 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 Please, please, please. Um, And he relented and hired me, and um, uh, and that's where I started using the Matrix 3 uh, system, you know, with the QStation software. Um, And So it sounds like USITT is a pretty sweet place to make connections and get jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's great for, for students, especially there's a, you know, um, for anybody who is interested in working at Disney or Cirque du Soleil, both of them show up and, you know, they have um, great internship programs, um, as you know, as well as you can talk to some audio manufacturers, you know, Meyer Sound is always there, as well as uh, D&B and some other, you know, some other companies. So I know people want to know how you got the job at Meyer Sound. Well, um, actually, uh, so while I was working at South Coast Rep, um, you know, I was using the QStation software, and you know, LCS, the company that made that, was uh, just up the road in Sierra Madre, about um, you know about an hour away, and um, you know because it's repertory theater and we're doing shows, different shows every month, um, you know we were able to be a beta test site for new releases of QStation software and, you know, new firmware. And, um, you know, so I'd be filing bug reports and asking why things are happening in this way or, you know, saying, um, you know, what I I liked or didn't like. And um, so got to know um, the people at LCS at the office there. They had a job opening for a product specialist um, right at the end of the South Coast Repertory season. So I applied for that job and uh, managed to get hired there. So um, so then I was working on, you know, managing the beta program for QStation and getting feedback and writing release notes and documentation. And then um, shortly after I got hired, they announced that Meyer Sound was going to acquire LCS. And so I got acquired along with the rest of the company. Okay. And... Um, that's how I ended up working for Meyer Sound. Ellen, where is the best place for people to follow you online? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Ellen Jillen. And I have a blog that I very rarely update. But uh, Twitter is where I post okay. most, of my, most of my news. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Sound Design Live. Hey, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it on iTunes or send it to a friend.